we have come into this house. We've gathered in his name to worship him. So forget about yourself and concentrate on him and worship him. Worship him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're grateful to be standing on tip to anticipation, awaiting a word from the Lord through our preacher, Christopher Lubinsky. Unassuming, non-self-serving, this is Christopher Lubinsky. Last spring he preached a sermon on 1 John 5, 16 and 17, dealing with the sin that leads unto death and the sin that does not lead unto death. He quoted from the late great Dallas Willard, who said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. This is the theology of grace of Christopher Lubinsky. In an email on October the 16th, just a few weeks ago, he writes these words. Dear professors, I am honored by your choice to select me for the James Earl Massey student preacher for this semester. I see each of you, Dr. Sweeney, Dr. Pascaravo, and Robert Smith, as a mentor and have been formed through your classes and beyond. I admit that I was in disbelief when Dr. Sweeney told me of your selection and I initially considered withdrawing to let another student step in. But with prayer and conversation this weekend, I was reassured of God's all-sufficient grace through which his power is made perfect in my weakness. This is Christopher Lubinsky, his theology of, of living. He's a faithful expositor. He has an insatiable appetite for learning and for growing toward excellence. His greatest asset is the very beautiful Caitlin Lubinsky. It's a fact. It's a joy to watch the Lord cause him to bloom and grow so that he always points to the one who is responsible for his life and for his very being. And Christopher, we will hear you gladly as God has spoken to you in order that you might speak to us. A reading from the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark, beginning in the first chapter and the first verse. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, 
baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word of the Lord. I want to start by giving thanks to all of the students and staff and faculty who have been so encouraging over these past few weeks. Even this morning, uh, people sending texts reminding me that they're praying for me. I want to give a special thanks to Dr. Sweeney uh, for encouraging me despite my initial ambivalence about being up here today. To Dr. Robert Smith, Thank you for being my preaching mentor and for reminding me that God's power is made perfect in weakness. To Dr. Pascarello and Dr. Webster, thank you for being such an integral part of my formation here at BCN, both intellectually and spiritually. Thank you to my pastors from Gardendale Church of the Nazarene for being here today. Pastor John Parrish and Pastor James Dollinger, you have modeled pastoral ministry so well for me. Thank you. And last but not least, thank you to my dear wife, Caitlin, my ally and my advocate. Thank you for your thoughtfulness and your care throughout the time here at Beeson. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? May the words of my mouth in the meditation of all of our hearts. Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Why in the world are we in the wilderness? I'd come to expect this question from worn-out backpackers on our week-long trek through the Sierra mountain range. I was one of the leaders on a series of backpacking trips for incoming college freshmen that were intended to help them make meaningful relationships in the outdoors before the semester started. This question usually came around the third day. On the first day, everyone was well rested, 
excited to be out in the outdoors and focused on making good first impressions with their new peers. On the second day, I could see a bit of fatigue appear on their faces, but for the most part, the excitement of a new experience kept them plugging along. But on the third day, after two nights of sleeping on the ground, a full body soreness having set in, and the realization that all trail foods sort of taste like dirt, the question would inevitably arise, why in the world are we in this wilderness? This certainly is not a question that's foreign to the people of God. We read in Exodus chapter 16 that Israel entered the land, the desert of Sin, and there they began to grumble, not only in their stomachs, but also in their hearts. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food that we wanted to. But you have led us out into this wilderness in order to starve this entire assembly to death. Why in the world are we in the wilderness? In our passage today, we again find ourselves in the wilderness. In fact, Mark mentions this phrase three separate times. He's adamant that of all places, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God, takes place in the wilderness. Now, it's worth clarifying up front that we tend to imagine the wilderness quite differently today. A quick search of the word in Google Images will overwhelmingly generate pictures of dense forests, alpine lakes, and snow-capped mountains. But for Israel, the wilderness was the desert. Those arid regions where little to nothing can grow to sustain human life. There's another important difference in the way that we tend to think of the wilderness today. In our more modern and urbanized era, many of us feel quite fondly towards wilderness areas, seeking to see them protected from human overuse. But in biblical times, it was the wilderness that was a threat. There was a constant danger from desert sands encroaching on arable land. There was danger from evil spirits that lurked in the wilds. There was danger from wild animals coming out of the desert to attack a shepherd's flocks. Now for Israel, there were times when the desert could be a place of refuge and rest, a place where they encountered and their Lord spoke to them. But this was because of and not despite the fact that the wilderness was a place that most avoided. So as we open our ears to God's word today, let us consider three questions to move our minds and hearts by the Spirit to prepare the way of the Lord in our midst. First, why were the people of God in the wilderness then? Second, why did the Son of God enter the wilderness? And third, what does this all mean for us, the people of God today who, to use John Bunyan's phrase, wander through the wilderness of this world. So first, why were the people of God in the wilderness then? Mark writes in verses 4 and 5, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Here the people of God are represented first by God's appointed messenger who proclaims, and second by those residents of Judea and Jerusalem who respond to his call. Let us first consider John, this mystery man of the desert. The gospel according to Mark is shockingly uninterested in his backstory, how he got into the wilderness, where he came from. We can assume that he was baptizing somewhere in the lower Jordan Valley, north of the Dead Sea, but even these details are left out of the text. We are simply told that John shows up preaching and proclaiming that he was dressed in rugged clothes and he was sustained by the meager diet of an uncultivated land. John's role in the opening of Mark's gospel is simple. His identity is prophetic, and his purpose is preparatory. In other words, his identity is as God's messenger who fulfills the words of the prophets, and his purpose is to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. This is precisely what we read in verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. These are the Lord's words given to the prophet Malachi, as recorded in the final book of our Old Testaments. Beginning in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, and continuing through chapter 3, verse 5, we read that in the face of the people's idolatry and their challenge to divine justice, the Lord promises to send his messenger ahead of him, to prepare his way. And then he will enter into his temple with judgment and purification for the people so that the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. The identity of this messenger is left anonymous. That is until we read in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So ends our Old Testaments. It leaves us, as it must have for the people of Israel, with a sense of longing and expectation not the least bit of fear, not merely for God to send this Elijah-like messenger, but for the Lord himself to come with judgment and healing in his wings. Later in his ministry, Jesus confirms that John was indeed this long-expected new Elijah. Just as Elijah, another man of the wilderness, proclaimed the word and showed the wonders of God so that the people might turn from their idolatry, so too... John is sent into the desert to prepare the people with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is how we must understand the identity and purpose of John the Baptist. He is God's long-expected prophet, sent in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the people for the coming of their God. And he does so not in the temple courts, not in Jerusalem even, but in the desert. 
So again, we ask, why the wilderness? Isn't this not the place of danger, death, and the devil? But for John the Baptist, and for those who heed his call, the desert becomes for them a place of purification and power. It is the city of Jerusalem and its surrounding settlements, which is, in this negative sense, the true wilderness, a place of spiritual dryness and dehydration, a fact that the gospel will show moving forward. The wilderness has become an oasis because it is where the word of the Lord is proclaimed. And this is by no means that God, the first time that God has spoken to his people in the desert. No, this may be God's favorite theater of theophany. God speaks in the wilds where his people may know that they do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we see the people's return into the wilderness itself as an act of repentance, of turning to the God of their ancestors who provided for them and protected them during their 40 long years of sojourn between Egypt and the Promised Land. The wilderness was where, despite the rebellion, God spoke to his people, where he cut a covenant with them that, he would be, that they would be his treasured possession, even his beloved son. It is the place where God gave them instruction that they may choose life and find rest, the place where God made his dwelling in their midst. And so again, the people descend into the desert to the River Jordan, heeding the call of the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. But what does this voice cry out? We hear it in verse 3. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. Notice that John prepares the way of the Lord by calling upon the people themselves to prepare. This quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which continues, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. This was an announcement of good news to the Jews during their time of exile, when Jerusalem had been crushed to rubble by the empire's armies. This joyful pronouncement is that God has not abandoned his people, but he is coming to deliver them and to be their righteous king forever. But the announcement is used here in Mark to point to a much greater divine deliverance, one which would come through God's own Son, this good news is summed up well in the first verse of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received double for all her sins. This is exactly the good news that John proclaims to the people with the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's important for us to understand that repentance is not the reason that God forgives his people. 
as if some prior action on our part must convince God to be gracious to us. Rather, forgiveness is offered through God's grace, and repentance through faith is the way that we receive what is, in this sense, already ours. We read in verses, verse 5 that the people do repent, and in mass numbers. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But this, this is only the beginning. The preparation is made, the desert highway constructed, a way is made in the wilderness. And so John proclaims, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Having considered the purpose of the people of God in the wilderness, let us now turn our gaze to behold the Son of God. Why would Jesus dwell in the desert? We read in verse 9, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, this may strike us as a pretty straightforward statement, but there's something surprising about it that we must consider. Why would Jesus, who we know is without sin, undergo a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It seems entirely unnecessary, even disingenuous, as if he's simply trying to blend in as one more of the penitents. But this is exactly what he's doing. How can this be? Because his descent into the desert demonstrates his solidarity with sinners. He is sinless, but he accepts a sinner's baptism. He is their representative, their substitute, their champion. For while the people of Judea and Jerusalem will turn away in time, Jesus alone keeps his face fixed on the Father. For where Israel had failed as God's only son, God's firstborn over all creation humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. In this way, Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry points to another at its completion, a baptism of blood. In Mark chapter 10, verse 37, after Jesus has told his disciples for the third time of his coming passion, we hear that James and John ask Jesus, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. This is a request for status and position. But they don't understand that to share in Christ's glory is to share also in his sufferings. It's telling that the only other time in Mark where anyone is mentioned at the left and right of Jesus is as he hangs on the cross. And it's not the sons of thunder who hang there with him, but two guilty robbers. James and John, along with the other disciples, had left him and fled. It's no wonder then that Jesus responds in the way that he does. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Remove this cup from me, and not what I will, but what you will be done. Jesus' descent into the desert and his submission to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins reveals his identity as a servant who is willing to suffer on behalf of the people. An identity which he holds on to throughout his entire ministry, culminating in the cross. As he says of himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1 is an occasion of Trinitarian love and power. We read in verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. As Jesus ascends from the water, the Spirit descends to rest upon him. And the comforting words of joyous approval come from the heavens. Now it's not as though Jesus didn't already have the Holy Spirit, who was not already the Son of God. I hope that we all learned in History and Doctrine 1 that adoptionism is a Christological dead end. Rather, this is a public and a palpable display of the Spirit's empowerment and the Father's love on the onset of his public ministry and all that is to follow. What a contrast to Jesus' baptism of blood. There, the approving voice from heaven was exchanged with the jeering mockery of the crowds. The enlivening presence of the Spirit seems to be extinguished as Jesus breathed his last. The King of the Jews was killed. The Son of God slaughtered. And the dominion of darkness seems to reign victorious. We read in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, that following Jesus' baptism, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was, he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Again, we ask, why the wilderness? Perhaps Jesus wondered the same thing as he was threatened by those harsh conditions, the wild animals, and of course the evil one who wanted to destroy him. Perhaps like Elijah, he wondered if he would waste away in the wilds were it not for the angels of God who attended to him. But even this is not the deepest desert into which Christ would descend. Following Jesus' baptism of blood, Jesus' body is wrapped in strips of linen and placed in a stone-sealed tomb. He descended into hell. He was swallowed by Sheol. He entered the desert of death. And it seemed as though the wilderness had won. Yet the spirit who first drove Jesus into the wilderness did not abandon him in his time of need. Neither did Jesus lose sight of his father's love. 
In the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, we learn that the devil begins two of his three temptations with the statement, if you are the Son of God. As if to say, prove yourself. Show something of yourself. If you are truly the Father's beloved Son, surely he would not let you suffer so terribly. But we know that Jesus, sustained by the power of the Spirit, holds fast to his Father's words of approval. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus' victory in the wilderness, by the word of his Father and the sustaining power of his Spirit, had only just begun. For on the third day after Jesus' baptism of blood, after his days in the desert of death, the Spirit of the Father raised him up again. Sin, death, and the devil were overcome. And just as Jesus emerged from the wilderness the first time, proclaiming the gospel of God, Jesus rose from the grave, commissioning his disciples to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of God to all creation. This great gospel we hear from Christ's own mouth in chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The crucified king is the risen Lord, and he has made a way in the wilderness. And so he calls upon all people to repent and believe the good news. I want to conclude today by returning to our final question. What does this all mean for us, the people of God today who wander through the wilderness of this world? Well, first of all, we should recognize that we are in good company among the communion of saints. The wilderness is a place where Abraham trekked, living in tents, yet trusting in the promises of God. It is the place where Joseph was thrown into a pit and sold as a slave by his treacherous brothers, yet where the Lord exalted him to bring about the saving of many lives. It is the place where the runaway Moses first knew the great I Am, who called him to announce liberation to his captive people under the crushing yoke of slavery. It is the place where Israel wandered for 40 years, testing the Lord and punished and yet, set apart and sustain in a dry land with water and bread and meat and every precious word that came from the mouth of God. It is the place where King David hid from the murderous Saul, where he longed for and thirsted for the Lord in a dry and parched land, yet where the Lord covered him in the shadow of his wings and upheld him by his mighty hand until the time had come to establish his throne and promise the everlasting kingdom of his son. It is a place where Elijah fled from the idol-worshiping king and queen of Israel and wished he would die. It were the Lord provided with him, with the angels, and with that bread and water for his sojourn, 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of God. It is a place where Isaiah saw the land become barren, and likened it to the desolation of the nations. Yet where God would cause forth streams in the desert, where he would cause flowers to bloom, where the poor 
with their parched tongues would drink deeply without cost. And it is the place where John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit, made his dwelling, proclaiming and preparing the people for the coming of the Lord. And at last, in the fullness of time, it is the place where the anointed one, son of God, son of man, emerges from the shadows of a weary world to be baptized, to be lavished with his father's love, to do battle with Satan by the power of the spirit, and to proclaim that in him the kingdom of God is at hand. Many of us will be completing our studies here at Beeson either in just a couple weeks or in the spring. Whether you have a ministry position lined up or a conventional job or perhaps no work prospects at all, this time to come may be a challenging one. Graduation, I hope, will be a high point, even if not quite so glorious as Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. But do not be surprised if the Spirit immediately drives you out into the wilderness, whether that be a challenging congregation or a stressful work environment or simply a persistent feeling of loneliness. There are times when we all experience this wilderness wandering acutely. In our mourning over the death of a loved one, in our distress when a dear friend abandons the faith, when the devil daily assails us with temptations, when depression or anxiety plague on our bodies and souls, when nations rise up against nations and the powerful oppress the weak. In those times, when in anger or grief or confusion, we cry out, why in the world are we in this wilderness? What good news could there be for such a time? Do you hear it? A voice. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. The king is coming. For our God has come. He has gone before us and made a way for us and is with us in the wilderness. We endure the difficulties of the desert by looking to him, the one who has suffered for sinners and died for our deliverance who has been raised to give us new birth and ascended to the right hand of the Father from where he pours out his promised Holy Spirit. Let us again repent and believe this good news. For in Christ, we too are led by the Spirit of God. We too cry out, Abba, Father. And we too are sustained by the Father's comforting words, You are my beloved Son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. For the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ dwells in you, the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also bring life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so as we await the coming of that day, 
when the dead in Christ will be raised, we can rest assured that the one who has made a way in the wilderness is forever with us and for us. For just as the Spirit did not abandon Christ in the wilderness, neither will he abandon you. The Spirit will strengthen you and uphold you through every trial and temptation so that you too, wherever he may send you, may proclaim the gospel of God to all creation. The desert is indeed a place of danger, death, and the devil. But when we encounter the living God, it becomes for us a place of rest, repentance, and renewal. It is a place where we make no spiritual food of our own, but we trust and live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is a place where we take no shelter in the comforts of this world, but we find our refuge under the healing shadow of his wings. A place where we put no trust in our possessions, but we store up for ourselves treasures which are in heaven that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And so we remember the one who made a way in the wilderness. And we pray his prayer, thy will be done. Not my will, but thine be done. And we proclaim that in him, the kingdom of God is at hand. For Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Thanks be to God. Amen. James Earl Massey Student Preaching Award is given every semester here at Beeson to a graduating senior who shows exceptional promise and proficiency and fruitfulness as a preacher of the word. It's, uh, I was just in tears a few minutes ago and I'm looking out and seeing uh, tears all over this chapel. Thanks be to God for his ministry among us today. Uh, some of you know who James Earl Massey was, is, some of us don't. Uh, in the late 20th century, he was one of the best-known preachers uh, in the country, and he was a dear friend of Beeson Divinity School. Uh, he's well-known to a lot of the older faculty who are here at Beeson, probably lesser-known to the younger folks here, uh, but he was known as a prince of preachers back in the day, and we're delighted to be able to honor his legacy by awarding the Massey Prize every semester. Of course, this year's or this semester's recipient of the Massey Prize is our brother Christopher, who's just preached a marvelous sermon on our way through the wilderness. Uh, I asked Christopher's favorite teachers for a few comments about him. Uh, he's a graduating senior, of course. He's kind-hearted. Everybody who knows Christopher thinks of him as one of the kindest people they know. He's a deeply thoughtful person who's loved by everybody. One of his favorite teachers calls him, quote, a cheerful presence and a keen student of the Bible. Another describes him as, quote, a delightful person with a heart for the church. He's also intellectually gifted, this professor adds, often asking questions and making suggestions that demonstrate great theological maturity. One of his preaching profs notes that although Christopher as a child was shy, and dreaded public speaking, he has, quote, emerged as a very effective preacher of the Word of God 
Information and inspiration remain inextricably tied together in his proclamation. I've seen, I think we've all seen that this morning. Thanks be to the Lord. Uh, one last senior faculty member testifies that Christopher has, quote, a spirit-gifted blend of humility and authority, deeply rooted and enduring for lifelong pastoral ministry. It's with gratitude to God, then, that I want to invite Christopher to come and receive this semester's James Earl Massey Student Preaching Award. Would you join me in thanking the Lord for Christopher? Let us go in peace now to love and serve the Lord.